MRAP Snack. Hello, everyone. This is Alden Landry coming to you from EMRAP, having a conversation around health equity. We've been trying to infuse more of these discussions into the content that you all are hearing on EMRAP. And this is a great opportunity for us to not only talk about health equity, but also bring in a conversation around pediatric emergency medicine. So I have with me today, Dr. Sherelle Smith, who is a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Stanford University. Dr. Sherelle Smith. And we're going to discuss the article, Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Triage Scores Among Pediatric Emergency Department Fever Patients. So this is an article by Dr. Jeff Dennis in the journal Pediatric Emergency Care, and it came out in 2020, so just before we as a country were ravaged by the COVID pandemic. So this article, while very important, does not include that critical, more recent experience that we all have been experiencing as emergency physicians as we're caring for patients. But I still think this is an interesting conversation for us to be having about health disparities, health inequities, even when patients, before they even get to see us as providers, as physicians caring for those patients. I know everyone knows this, but let's make sure we're all on the same page. Tell me, what is the typical triage process in a pediatric emergency department? And what goes into the decision about what level emergency severity index or ESI score a pediatric patient receives? It's based on an initial assessment by that nurse that usually includes vital signs and a brief history, some standardized questions, and how to kind of put you into a picture of how sick are you or how urgent do you need to be seen. The ESI scores range from one to five, one having the highest associated mortality or the most emergent status, but it also determines what level of resources are necessary to care for the patient. For an example, a level five is a patient with a complaint that requires zero resources. So think about that patient as only needing an MD exam, MD assessment. So then when you move up to a level four, that encounter would usually require what they suspect at that time would be a single resource. So they might need an x-ray or just a simple lab draw. And then as you get to level three, that's two or more resources, level two and so forth. ESI scoring is a nursing-driven scoring system that has little to do with an assessment actually by a physician. It occurs in triage with a nurse and it's a very important tool that can vary slightly per hospital-driven protocols, but for the most part, it's standardized across the country, and it's a critical part of nurse education curriculum and their scope of practice. This is a basis, like I said before, to really determine like who is the sickest of our patients that are waiting to be seen, and then who requires the most urgent or emergent intervention, who has the highest mortality, who needs that physician assessment the fastest. So from what you're telling me, there's no variation between what I do from an adult emergency medicine side compared to what you're doing with the pediatric emergency medicine side. And again, emphasizing that we have to recognize this is a nurse-driven process, but it has huge impacts on who we as physicians get to see and who we go to see first in our emergency departments. And so even though it may not necessarily be under our control, it does have a huge impact on our workflow. Now that we're here, we have an understanding and we know that what an ESI is and we know where people are starting from and we know who is making sort of that number, assigning that number of an ESI score to the patient. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you found in this article that we're discussing today? Yeah, you know, from this study, it appeared that minority children have a lower assigned ESI score 
And remember that lower assigned ESI score, it means you don't require a lot of resources and also means that you'll be seen a little bit later or your priority is lower than an ESI 3, 2, or 1. So these children were assigned a lower ESI score compared to their majority counterparts after one year of age. This study was one of the first to compare a single diagnosis, which was fever, over multiple age groups. And what was reassuring here that regardless of their score, so even though there may have been some issue or bias related to the assignment of that score for their priority of being seen, those who did require a higher level of care, their outcome was still correct. Like they were always admitted if they needed that to happen. So what you're saying is on the front end, we may not have gotten it right, but fortunately on the back end, the right decisions were made for the goals of care and the best outcomes of care for those patients. Right. And I think too, it's important to point out that this difference happened after a year of age, which was also really reassuring to me that, you know, infant care, how we care for children under that year of age, we do that pretty standard. Like those kids all get the same type of ESI scoring. It's just when they get a little older, now we start to see these differences and happening. And that may have came from different, to me, the with the American Academy of Pediatrics, there was very standardized like rules of if a child is one month old with fever, you follow this process strictly. You know, if they're two months and under, three months and under, it's really regimented and that can stay consistent. And I think even with adult providers taking care of pediatric patients, you're going to do your due diligence. You're going to make sure you're super conservative with those children under a year of age. And I think that's why they saw a difference probably once they got a little older. Interesting. This is a single site study, correct? Are there other examples of where this may be happening in emergency medicine, whether it's in pediatrics or in adult EM? Unfortunately, there are examples of this type of bias almost across every aspect of care in the emergency setting from ESI assignment to who receives what type of pain medication and when to even who receives medications for nausea. And, you know, what's most unfortunate is, like you said before, this happens in older patients, and it now is showing us that this even happens to our smallest patients. So no paper is perfect. We all know that there's going to be a limitation or two to any article that we review. Can you talk about some of the limitations that the author may have mentioned and also what limitations that you may have seen from this paper as well? Sure. You know, one limitation I just want to point out, and it may not be the most important one, but we're reviewing this now two years out. The data used here was about seven years ago from the National Hospital Ambulatory Medical Care Survey. And I just wanted to point out again here that a lot occurred in this country and the world socially that may have impacted the degree of unconscious bias and blatant discrimination that may have been going on when this paper was first created or when they were able to put together this manuscript. We have had polarizing elections. There have been several movements amongst minority groups, including Black Lives Matter movement, Stop Asian American Pacific Islander hate movements, and so much more that may have changed actually what this data looks like in today's world. And so I think it's important to bring up, you know, that environment is different from what the data looked like seven years ago. And I wonder what this paper would look like now if it was actually uh, written after these huge impactful events occurred. So I just wanted to state that as like kind of one of the things I thought was, was interesting looking at today's viewpoint from this. Another limitation though, 
going back again to that specific database, I think it would be interesting to know if there is a clinical significance associated with emergency departments that are freestanding versus those that are embedded within a children's hospital or in some places where the children's ED is within an adult ED, if any of those things change, I think would be a nice thing to know. And being that this was a single center study, we don't have that information. Or if there was a difference in pediatric trained nursing versus those who work in that hybrid situation or an adult-only environment, if that had any play or any impact on ESI scoring. Another limitation or thing that I thought was interesting about this is just the demographic makeup of our country, right? We know that there are less minorities that live in the Midwest and the West and different areas. How a low sample size would affect clinical significance, I think, also is something that may have been a limitation from this paper. So from this study, I think they said that there was about a 22% difference in all areas of the U.S. But can we really say that? applied to every different geographic area or, you know, the demographic makeup of each area might be a little bit different. Could that be a larger or smaller disparity in some areas? And if you saw that differences in the outcomes that they describe in this paper. Last limitation that I wanted to make sure we talked about today, and this is uniquely to pediatric patients, is that most history is obtained from a third party. We don't have an idea here of what the parental input or the influence of scoring or, you know, a little bit more background on that. Maybe a patient that was a minority had a lower score because they were actually given medications for their fever at home. So their fever was on the way down and we, we just don't have that information from this study. But that could have had an impact on their scoring as well. It's great that you bring up the parenting component because one of the other things that could also come into play is patients with limited English proficiency and how we know that there are some differences in triage scores for LEP patients compared to primarily English-speaking patients. And so you add in these potential layers, you add in the parent may be giving the history, limited English proficiency, other barriers that may be coming into place. And you can see how this can compound and lead to a lower triage score, a lower ESI score for some patients. One of the things that we're starting to see pop up around the country where some shops are putting physicians in triage and they're calling them a doc in triage. And as this model becomes more popular, do you have any thoughts on how this may change the outcome of a situation like this where a patient coming in may have a lower triage score? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I believe this may have an effect on outcomes just with the experience level and training alone that a physician would bring to triage. I've been a part of these models before, and it also supports our nurses who are really concerned about a patient or may need additional confirmation that they made that appropriate assessment of a patient. It also brings immediate attention to those higher acuity patients as well, having that physician present in triage. I think ultimately it will foster a team environment and lend itself to real-time learning. So that's one of the things that I think would be, a, it is a positive for having that doc and triage model, but at the same time, it's a fine balance because we want our nurses to have the autonomy that they've also worked very hard and trained for to be able to do the things that are specific to their education and to their scope. Now, I, I want to drive home this point because I think we have made a leap in more recent times to discussing how there is an overlay between quality and health equity. And so what does this mean for our patients when we see this data bearing out that there is a health inequity? 
What does it mean for wait times? What does it mean for quality metrics? And are there other things that we should be caring about? Time to MD, for an example, especially with using the doc and triage model, is a metric that's followed nationwide. It's a benchmark for most emergency departments. And having that provider in triage dramatically reduces this. And it has a positive effect on wait times and patient satisfaction. It's like, oh, wow, you know, I checked in and I saw my doc immediately. (laughs) Or I was able to see a doctor very quickly. I'm happy with that. I am being seen for my issues. And then when you go back to kind of what the paper and what the undertones are there, if you have a patient that's waiting longer to be seen because they weren't that priority, it can mean a lot of things. It could definitely be an issue with patient satisfaction. What we worry the most about is that I can't see that patient because they were triaged inappropriately or they needed more attention than what we thought they actually you know, needed up front. But once I saw them in the back, like, oh, no, I needed to make this intervention or, you know, they were sicker. We can't predict things, I think, that, you know, are happening from being that not the front line or the first provider that makes that decision for patients. But like the study did show, even though the priority may have gotten out of order a little bit or maybe that person that was the sickest didn't get seen first, they still were admitted. But should they have had to wait longer because they look different or because they spoke differently? And that's where we really have to make sure we have ourselves our checks and balances that we really don't let that happen for families. From a quality standpoint, making an accurate determination of a degree of illness, you know, certain interventions can be initiated more quickly and lead to better outcomes. An example I like to use all the time is particularly for pediatric patients is given the beta agonist albuterol in the first 15 to 30 minutes of arrival to the ED. It's led to better outcomes. Specifically, it decreases length of stay of hospitalization of our asthmatics. So this is a great example of quality when I can really get an intervention started as soon as possible when we recognize something is going on. So one way that we can counteract that or that we're able to make that intervention and take different types of biases out are like, triage protocols. So if you fall into, you know, these set of inclusion criteria, my triage RN can automatically give you that beta agonist in the first 15 to 30 minutes. You're not waiting because you got assigned a four or five or three based on whatever type of biases that may be there. But I think a solution to all of this is having those triage protocols. Awesome. Well, I want to say thank you to you, Dr. Sherelle Smith, for joining us. This was an awesome conversation. I felt like I learned a lot. And I think this is a great place for us to continue this conversation in the world of health equity and how we can do better for our patients and ultimately improve their experience in the emergency department and more importantly, improve their outcomes in the emergency department. So thank you for being here and thank you for joining us. 